Our scripture reading today will be coming from Revelation 1, 9, 2 through 7. If you have an electronic device, you can uh, look that up on that. If you're using a Bible in the pew, the regular print would be page 1286 and 1287. If you have a large print Bible, it'll be uh, page 1913 and 1914. And again, this is Revelation 1, 9 through 2 through 7. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patience and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in spirit when I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thymera, Sardius, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet was like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Right therefore you have seen what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands in this the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. You work you hard, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have preserved and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have fallen. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen Repent and do these things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, come to you and remove your lampstands from its place. But you have, I and this is your favor. You hate the practices of Nicol, I'm sorry, which I have also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcome, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. God bless his word this morning. Well, it's our last week, our last week in this series, and, and next week, of course, will be our Christmas Eve service, and we'll I'll share a short kind of Christmas devotion that day and kind of a shortened setting that we'll have there. Um, but this week we wrap things up in this series. We've been looking at the church in Ephesus, and we've been looking at it in, in kind of snapshots, if you will, of this church. We, we know more about the church in Ephesus than perhaps any other church of that first century. Uh, when, when, you know, I mean, this was one of the original churches, right? Helped, planted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, there in the, I mean, the first generation, the eyewitnesses that had seen Jesus do what he did and die and resurrect. And those eyewitnesses were still living at this time. And it's just maybe two decades after those events took place. And, and this church in Ephesus, in this very important hub This city that was kind of like the capital of the region it was in, it's modern day Turkey. Uh, It was was a significant city in a lot of ways. It was one of the most learned cities in the world, had the third largest library in the world. It it was very religious. Their their religion was a pagan religion, just like uh, the Greeks and the Romans had worshipped a a whole pantheon of gods, right, for for years and years and centuries, and, and they, you know, they were a part of that. And not only were they a part of that, but they had the biggest temple that anybody had for that. I mean, you know, you've heard of the Parthenon in Athens, and this dwarfed the Parthenon. This thing was massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was the center of their culture and the center of their economy. And, and so we've learned a lot about the city of Ephesus. But there's this little group of believers... And we've been following them through different stages of their journey from the very beginning when they were planted. And, and they began to learn about this new way of life in Jesus. And then we followed them a little further. And we learned uh, so a little more about them as we've gone. We just get these little snapshots, if you will. You know, we got the, when, when they were started and, and Paul said, you need the Holy Spirit. And they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so he kind of filled in that blank for them and they began to live uh, with, with God's power in them instead of just trying to live for God on their own power. We, then we kind of fast forwarded a few years and we saw where they were radically living out their faith in such a way that it turned their entire culture and their community and the economy that was based around that pagan worship began to suffer because of this small group of believers. And man, that encouraged us because, you know, we may be a smaller church, but we're not as small as they started out. And, and they turned a huge city up on its head. And what can we do at Cypress Street if we begin to share and live our faith out publicly and, and you know, and radically do what we say we believe. And so, uh, so we read about that. And then fast forward a few more years and and Paul is in chains. He's a prisoner, the Apostle Paul, and he writes them a letter and says, let me fill you in on a few more details of what it means to live for Jesus, to live this way that you've been called to because 
Because your identity, who you are, if you say you're a Christ follower, that determines your activity. And likewise, what you do, your behavior, it proves who you are, whose you are. And so we looked at that as well. Uh, and then last week we kind of talked about this idea of defending the way. And we, see, we saw the Apostle Paul writing to the young pastor at Ephesus and saying, defend the way, defend the way, protect the message. Don't let false teachers come from inside. Don't let them come from outside and, and twist and warp this message. Because if we lose the message, we lose the movement. And so we talked about the importance of clinging to God's truth, clinging to Jesus' way, sticking to the truth, sticking to the original uh, message of Jesus and his apostles, and, and, not, and being you know, critical in the sense of not just believing everything we hear, but putting it through that filter. Does this match up with Jesus and what he taught us? And, and so we learned the importance of defending the way. And today, we learn that even if you do all that right, though, that there's something that you need to be warned about. That there's a possibility that you can lose your way over time. And today, we pick up with the last snapshot, if you will, that we get of this church in Ephesus. And it's a humbling one. And it's one that, you know, surely if we can be inspired by their story along the way as we've, as we've explored it. And, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've, I've grown to feel like a connection to this church, you know, 2,000 years ago, just through hearing the stories and hearing their struggles. And it's neat for us sitting here to be able to connect with in that way through their story. It's almost like, you know, the folks who are into genealogies, some of you are into genealogies, and you go back and you find your story uh, back a few generations well, this is, for us as, you know, as Christians, this is our Christian genealogy, and we've tracked it back 2,000 years. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff there, you know. Um, not many of your genealogy exploration has probably gone back that far on a personal level, but as a church, we can track our way way back. And so it's been neat. But today, you know, we read that passage in the book of Revelation, and it was a message to be delivered to the church in Ephesus. And it had some good things to say, and it had some warnings to give as well. Now when we began to read that, that letter, we have to kind of place it in context. The book of Revelation is described to us as a vision. A vision that came to John while he was exiled on the island called Patmos for his faith, for his Speaking out for Jesus, he had been exiled to Patmos. And while there, he was able to write this letter that circulated to the churches in Ephesus and around Ephesus. In fact, there were seven churches listed and seven letters written. And you can see on the map that uh, you can see, hopefully you can see Ephesus there by the coast and then around Ephesus. Ephesus likely would have been kind of the mother church, if you will, the hub from which all the other happened because everyone came to town to Ephesus, right? To get, you know, to do trade, uh, to sell their goods, to uh, worship at the Temple of Artemis, whatever, you know, so they would have heard about the gospel in Ephesus and then started churches in their communities around. And now there's these various churches in the region. And we're talking probably, uh, probably 40 to 50 years or so after the message first came to Ephesus. 
So somewhere around 100 A.D. instead of around 50 A.D. So there's been a couple generations that have come up and that have heard about the way from their ancestors who first heard about the way from Apollos and Paul. And now these other churches have begun. And we, John has this vision. We call the book of Revelation apocalyptic literature. It's not because... Uh, you know, the, the word apocalyptic gets used in a lot of different ways, but it's also a genre, a type of literature that was common in the Jewish culture. And, and oftentimes it had to do with these visions. You know, it's hard to describe a vision sometimes. There's some things, some truths that are hard for God to describe. Otherwise, he could just write it in a message, you know, and just say, here you go. But instead, sometimes he gives visions. And to John, on this Isle of Patmos, he gave a vision. And Paul tries, I mean, John tries to describe that vision for us. But again, it's something that, was, that he saw and experienced, and he's trying to put it into words for us. And there's a lot of symbolism. If you've you know, ever read in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel in the Old Testament, you'll find a lot of similar, uh, similar kind of literature, and even some of the same imagery that John uses in his book. But this first part of his book, he encounters this figure that's walking amongst lampstands and holding seven stars and, and the imagery is significant and we come to find that the one walking amongst these lampstands is Jesus and that the lampstands represent the churches these seven churches to whom are being written these, this letter and uh, I think it's interesting that they choose lampstands because you know John especially in, in the Gospel of John and in the epistles that we have that are attributed to John, the letters from the Apostle, well, he uses this idea of light all the time. That Jesus was the light of the world and that we are like a, a lamp or a city on a hillside, right? And all those kinds of images that we're to be the light of the world in turn. And, and so, of course, lampstands are what are described in and Jesus begins to give messages to one after another to be delivered. And of course they start with Ephesus, because Ephesus is where it started. And as we read what his message to Ephesus is, we begin to nod our head. As the report comes in, we, we approve. You know, we're pleased to see that they've heeded the warnings of the apostles. That they're persevering in the truth. That they have defended the way against all manner of false doctrines, we were told, and teachings. And they've not grown weary of, of persevering and enduring, even through hardships in the way. That's, that's good, right? Because we just studied last week how, time and again, from the, from the time that the Apostle Paul was with them, to the time that he left them, when he warned them again with tears, to the letters that he wrote to Timothy saying defend the message, defend the message, and we read that, man, the, the first thing that Jesus praises them for, the, the biggest thing that they got right was they've defended the message. They've defended the way. They've protected it. They've clung to the truth. When people rose up and tried to twist the truth or change the truth, they said, uh-uh, not happening here in Ephesus. We know what the truth is. We were taught the truth. We've clung to the truth. Jesus says, good job. But then... Yet I hold this against you. 
sure they're, as they read this message as it was passed from church to church, no doubt their hearts kind of skipped a beat. Yet I hold this against you. Well, what, Lord? You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Wow. So somehow it's possible to get the message right, to cling to the truth, to persevere, and yet lose your first love for God, for each other, to lose that passion that you had when you began this whole journey. Again, you know, here's this church that, this was the church that, you know, Apollos had had shown up and, and passionately, you know, with fire, proclaimed what truth he knew about Jesus. And, and then along came Paul and, and boy, the Holy Spirit filled them and they were radical in their faith. Now, Jesus says, you've forsaken your first love. And he says, if you don't repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's a pretty serious warning. Amazing, isn't it, that you can do all the right stuff, you can protect the message, you can do all that and still lose your way in a sense. What are they guilty of here? They've lost their first love. I mean, they're still doing the stuff, they're still protecting the message, but they lost the love. Maybe they're just going through the motions. Do you remember when you were first in love? If you, have you ever been in love like that? I remember, uh, this is a picture from when Julie and I, our engagement pictures. Uh, and you know when you're engaged, you're crazy. And uh, so... This was a, a picture we took. Uh, we spent money on pictures at a, uh, at, at a bookstore. You know, it was a bookstore where we had our first date. And there was a, kind of a cafe and bookstore. And, and, uh, and so we went back there and took some pictures. And, um, you know, just so we can remember and look back and say, oh. And uh, you, you remember, don't you, when you were, you know, if you, if you had a first love like that, then uh, you probably remember doing some crazy things. You know, we were always holding hands. You know, you can't not be touching, you know, you have to hold hands everywhere. And you, uh, you know, we'd get ice cream cones and walk around the parking lot at my apartment in circles. And uh, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe trade ice cream cones along the way, unless she got mint chocolate chip. Uh, she can have that. And, uh, you know, those kinds of crazy things you do. You spend money that you wouldn't have normally spent, you know. Uh, I, I used to joke that... Every time we'd go out, I was not only buying her dinner, I was buying her lunch for the next day because she ate like a bird. And uh, <laughs> so then she'd take it home. I'm like, like I'm, I'm, I'm feeding this girl around the clock. Uh, but, but you don't care. You just do it because you're in love, you know. And, and, and then you get married and you get you know, the honeymoon and you're just on cloud nine and you're 
floating around. I remember when, when we had only been dating probably maybe a month or something, uh, when I ended up going and interviewing at a church in Springfield, Missouri. And of course, we were living in Oklahoma City at the time, both of us. And, and uh, I went and interviewed for a worship pastor position at, at uh, the church in Springfield, Missouri. And which was, you know, quite, a, it seemed like forever to a girl that, uh, forever away to a girl that had grown up in the same house her whole life. And so uh, I went and, and they probably thought I was crazy because, you know, here I like just met this girl really. And, and I sat in this meeting in this interview and I said, well, I've got one question for y'all. And that would be, uh, if, if I came, could I have the flexibility in my schedule to go see her in, in Oklahoma every other week? You know, I'd work an extra day so I could have a day off, you know, and, we could, and they said, sure. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, you, you fight for, for love, you know, when you're, when you're first in love and you're willing to do anything and ask anything and, and, uh, and, and to fight for that thing. And, and I don't know, do you remember the crazy stunts maybe that you pulled once upon a time and... Of course, I ask you this for a reason, and it's not just to bring back memories or whatever, but because in a moment I'm going to ask you what kind of first things you did when you first fell in love with Jesus. But we do crazy things. We do crazy things when we're in love, and it was the same for the church in Ephesus. And Jesus says to them, Repent. And do the things that you did at first. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Now we don't know everything that they did at first. We only have what we were told. But we do know some of what they did at first. Because we have the accounts of when the gospel first came to Ephesus. And we know what happened when Paul showed up and he prayed for him to receive the Holy Spirit and and, uh, and they began to publicly live out their faith. And, and we're told that they began to openly confess the sinful life that they were leaving behind. You know, it was a public change for them. And, you know, I mean, people don't just get up and openly confess things, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not normal. But, but when you're in love, you do crazy things. And they, they would stand up and say, here's all the junk that I've done that I'm leaving behind. Of course, then there was the time that they, uh, they burned down $5 million to the ground. You remember that? Were you here week two of the series on uh, sharing the way? And we read that account where they brought all these scrolls on which were written stuff about sorcery and that kind of thing. And uh, they were into that. I mean, that was the culture they were in. These were highly valuable documents because people were really into things like sorcery and mediums and all that kind of stuff. And, and they had been, many of the people that were in that church at the beginning had been practicing those things. And, you know, most of us would think, okay, so you want to give it up. Well, you go sell it, right? It's worth a bunch of money. <laughs> go sell it. Give some of that money to the poor or whatever. But no, they were in love. They were crazy. They burned it to the ground. <laughs> Bonfire time, you know. They just poured the kerosene on and you know, lit the match or whatever they had back then. Uh, rubbed the sticks. I don't know how they did fire back then. I need to research that sometime. But I bet they didn't have sticks. Anyway. Crazy. They were crazy. But they were in love. That's what you do. 
they radically repented from the way they'd been living and started living in a new way. Started, no doubt, telling people about Jesus. Started treating people with love that they normally would have hated. Started taking care of poor people instead of worrying about just taking care of themselves. You know, Jesus spells out the main point for us today. You can sum it up several ways, but here's one way to look at it. And that's simply that to get back the passion that you had at first, then you need to do the things you did at first. To get back the passion that you had at first, you need to do the things that you did at first. And this is true in our marriages. <laughs> right? We lose passion sometimes in our, in our marriages. That, and, and of course... You know, there's a sense in which you can't carry on like you did at first with no sleep, and just ice cream. Uh, you know, you, you can't spend that kind of money all the time, whatever. You know, you, there's some of those things you, you can't keep up. That doesn't mean that the passion dies, it just changes. And in some ways you could say that it grows deeper. At least for some marriages, it grows deeper. As you remain faithful, as you stay through the tough times, and you go through those really dark seasons together where it's, it's tough but you're like you know what she couldn't get rid of me if she tried I'm sticking with her and you do you keep on doing those things and yeah you know you're, it's but it, in some ways it's more radical than ever before because it's grown deeper but that doesn't happen in every marriage we know that in a culture that is riddled with broken marriages. It doesn't happen in every marriage. And most of us, at some point in time, will come on a season in our marriages where, you know, some of the flame is gone, maybe. Some of the passion is gone. It's not that, that loving feeling or whatever, you know, it may have shaken or been, you know, may be wavering a little bit, but the way you get back to that is you don't just wait around for a feeling to show up one morning. You, know, you don't just say, well, you know, we're having some trouble in our marriage, but one day it's just going to boom, you know, and it's going to be back. <laughs> doesn't work that way, does it? You have to do the things that you did at first. Yeah, I mean, you have to hold her hand, right? You have to be thoughtful, you have to do those things even when you don't feel like doing them. I mean, every, every good marriage counselor says the same thing pretty much, you know. You, you go and you do those things. You date your spouse again, in a sense, you know, they'll say. And you just, even when you don't feel like it, you do those things for them and that feeling returns. You know, that love deepens, the passion returns, whatever, you know, however you want to call it. But you don't just sit around and wait for it to happen. It just doesn't spontaneously happen. You have to do the things you did at first. And the same is true in our marriage to Jesus. We are, the scriptures often compare our relationship, the church, and our relationship to our Lord and Savior Jesus as a marriage. But it seemed an obvious illustration today to get the passion you had at first, you need to do the things 
that you did it first. And here's what we know about the Christians in Ephesus. They didn't know much early on. They were pretty naive. They were in danger of the wrong teacher coming along and totally taking things in a weird direction. But they had passion. They were fervent. They were sincere. They were dedicated. They were radical in their repentance. And they're living for Jesus to the best of their knowledge. Can you think back to when you first decided to follow Jesus? What things did you do at first? I don't know where you're at today. You know, you may be on, uh, you may be going strong with Jesus. So just file this one away. File this message for a season where you're struggling. But let's all take inventory today and just say, what were some of the first things that we did? Did you read the Gospels? Maybe the Gospel of John, that's where a lot of folks start. And just read about Jesus and what he did. Did you start going to church or to classes or anything, any, anywhere that you could learn more? Learn more. You wanted, to, you wanted to get to know this Jesus better. Did you maybe pray more than you'd ever prayed before? Maybe you talked to God for the first time like he was your father or friend even. Did you begin to treat other people differently than you had before, you know? With more compassion, maybe? Did you leave some bad behaviors behind? Say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Did you do anything that other people would have thought was crazy? Did you tell anyone about Jesus? I don't know what all you did. But I imagine you did some of those things, and probably some that I didn't think of. What about now? I think you know, one of the things that when we look at the church in, in Ephesus, one of the things that they clearly needed to get back to doing was repent and do the things you did at first. And, and what's funny about that is, Repenting was one of the things they did at first. <laughs> and I wonder if that wasn't kind of the point. Remember what you did at first? The whole repenting thing? Yeah, you need to do that again. <laughs> Repent. Do the things you did at first. And maybe that's a good place for us to start today too. I don't know where you're at with your faith today, but maybe, maybe it's as simple as Boy, I hardly pray anymore. At least not like I used to. Repent. Do the things you did at first. Maybe it's, man, I kind of fell back into some of those things I said I was going to leave behind. Repent. Do the things you did at first. You get the idea. Why is repenting such a big deal? Why is it perhaps impossible to regain your passion without it? I don't know. Jesus told a story, a couple of stories, 
Uh, one was about a, a guy who was wandering around, I guess, taking a hike, and stumbled across some treasure in a field. And uh, I don't know if he had a metal detector or what, but he found this treasure in the field, and it's said that he found it, he buried it back, and he went and sold everything he had so he could buy that field that contained the treasure. Sold everything he had so he could get that field. Uh, another story, similar one Jesus told right after that, was of a guy who was a merchant in pearls, which were a really fine thing back then. I mean, you know, we like pearls now, but back then it was like gold, you know. I mean, it was uh, extra precious, and, and this was a merchant of pearls. And he found this one pearl that he felt was priceless. It was perfect. And again, he sold everything, all of his other pearls, and he bought that one pearl. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like that. A modern day example, not as good as Jesus, but has anyone seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Uh huh, yeah, good one. <laughs> um, kind of, you know, of course, a little bit far fetched as all Indiana Jones ones go, but, uh, you know, they're looking for the Holy Grail and, and they find the Holy Grail. And, and the Holy Grail was, was awesome, you know, it was holy. And, and they tried to leave with the Holy Grail, and the place that it was being kept starts shaking and coming apart, you know. And, and, and this girl, this um, German crazy woman that Indiana was with at the time, decides to try to climb down and get this thing. And there's this scene, if you've seen it, maybe this brings back a memory, but she's reaching, you know, she's holding on to Indiana Jones with one hand, and she's reaching for the grail with the other hand, and if she would have just forgotten the grail and grabbed a hold of Indy, she could have been alive, you know, but instead, she had to have it, and she lost her grip because she couldn't hold on with one hand, fell to her doom, and then Indiana had the same choice to make, and he was tempted to grab for it, and then he decided to hold on and get some help getting lifted up himself. But it's that same principle. You can't reach for, much less hold on to, the things of this world and lay hold of Jesus and his kingdom. That's the point Jesus keeps trying to get across. That you you can't hold on with this hand and grab a hold with this hand and be good. (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. And the... The Ephesians knew that when they began. Maybe somewhere along the road they forgot. And so Jesus came back and reminded them. He said, repent and do the things you did at first. If you want to get back that first love that you've lost, you need to do the things you did at first. So I wonder if there's anything that you need to do To put back into your life this week that you did it first, but somewhere along the road, just kind of lost it. Stopped doing it. And so you've lost some of that first love. So on a personal level, I challenge you to think about that. Give that some thought. And in the space on your note card, maybe, just write it down. Write down what you need to start doing again that you did it first so you can get back the passion that you had at first
as a church. Because this was written to a church, right? I mean, this was to the church in Ephesus. And so to the church at Cypress Street Church of God, 1401 Cypress Street. Do you know much about our story? It began back around 1941. So in a way, we're, we're an older church than Ephesus was when this was written, most likely. But in around 1941, a few families decided they wanted to start a church. And now you don't start a church unless you're crazy. <laughs> it's hard work to plant a church. It's hard work to start a church. You don't do that unless you're crazy, unless you're in love with Jesus. And they began to meet in each other's homes because they didn't have anywhere to meet. Just like the church in Ephesus would have... It was just a handful of people, just a few families, and they'd meet in each other's homes. 1941, that's what they were doing here. And Brother Mizell moved up here uh, from another spot in the state, and, and he began to host it in his home and, and to preach for a few years. Then in 1944, uh, J.C. Grubbs and his family moved from South Carolina to be the pastors here, and with the mission, the primary mission of getting some kind of place for this church to meet. And so the property over here was donated, uh, was given to the church, and then they began to build it. And, and J.C. Grubbs was not only a pastor, but he knew about construction and, and uh, began to lead this project with, like, with a hammer in hand kind of deal. And, and they built that building down there that's now our fellowship hall. And it was their sanctuary. And they completed that right around 1950. I can't remember the exact date right now, but there's a cornerstone you know, block down there that you can go check out the date. Uh, and I was looking through some pictures the other day. And I came across this picture. Now keep in mind, you know, this started off with just a few families. Meeting in each other's homes. And then, you know, they, they finally, hard work, blood, sweat, tears, erected a building. And their first services in that building were re- revival services. And they brought in N.T. Knight, which was a local you know, evangelist from this region that, you know, fiery and gospel oriented. And, and, and they came and I mean, they were, they were on fire. You can just imagine and I found this picture. This is 1956 on an Easter service. They had more people in attendance than who are in the picture. So I'm guessing the picture is just kind of the, the members and the people who were there as guests, either out of town or visiting or whatever, probably didn't stay for the picture. But uh, they said they had about 125 in attendance that morning. And they had you know, less than that in this picture, somewhere around 89 or so people in the picture. First thing that I noticed, can you tell how many kids there are up there? Oh my goodness. I tried to count them. Looked like there was about uh, 24 little kids. And that doesn't even count about that many like youth and young adults, you know, singles and and high school kids and college age kids and that kind of thing. And, and another thing that I noticed 
was that there were probably about, I don't know, 10-ish gray heads up there. <laughs> and, and they're all dressed up, yeah. And they've got the kids up there up front, partly because they're short, partly because they're proud of them, no doubt. And, you know, time's gone by. A few years ago, which is the first that I would have known anything about it, you know, when we showed up in May 2014, so a few years after that, uh, the, the demographics were a lot different of the church, right? And, uh, and there was a, I would say we had about 40 folks who I'd put in the retired adults category instead of about 10. And there were about 14 kids instead of, how many did we say, 25? And about 11 instead of 25 of the young adults. And so the, the scene had changed a lot. And I don't have anything against any generation. But what I think is indicative of a healthy church, you know, would be that it reflects the society. Do you know what I mean? Like, whatever the... Like, for instance, in, in the state of Louisiana, if you, if you looked at, like, younger folks who are younger than working age, right? So young adults and kids and babies. And then you looked at folks who are older than working age, the ratio of that is in the state is three to one in the state of Louisiana last you know last census or whatever three to one so like three of those younger than working age people for every one older than working age people you know what I mean uh, and and if you look at like the working versus retired ratio you know in the state it's more, more like five to one like five people in the you know, working age, like 20, you know, whatever graduating college is now, 20, 30? No, <laughs> you know, like 25-ish to, to 65-ish, you know, that span of time versus retirement age. And I point all that out to say that I wonder if there wasn't something somewhere along the way where we had a similar experience to the church in Ephesus. I don't know. I don't know all the circumstances and all the stories, but you know when the, when this thing got kicked off and started out. I mean, just look at all those young families. Look at the. I mean, the. Can you imagine that many kids running away around with that few adults? <laughs> that must have been a, an interesting, an interesting scene. What do we need to do that we did it first? The goal is not to, to run off old people and bring in young people. It's just to have it reflect society, you know? It, it, in a church, it should be kind of the same as, as what we have in, in what we see in our homes, right? It, around the, at Christmas time. Or it should reflect our culture, our society, the, the society around us. It, you know, if we're reaching all people, then it should be kind of proportional. And what I'm afraid of is maybe at some point did we stop having that same mindset? Did we, do we need to do some of the things that we did at first? And what were those things that we did at first? And doubtless some of the specific things 
wouldn't work in our day in our culture. You know, some of the specific deals, you know, the flannel board might not have the same effect in 2016 or 17 as it, as it did in 1957. But, but, you know, the idea being, man, we, we care about kids, and this church does, don't we? And we care about youth. And, uh, and we've already seen a difference being made in just a short amount of time. And I believe it's entirely possible that we'll have, instead of, you know, when, in, in 2014, we had about double as many people retirement age as we had in that younger than working age category. And now it's a lot closer to one to one. It's, we've got about 31 in that younger age and about 37 in that older age. So it's, that's a big shift that's a big shift from 22 to 40 to, uh, to, to 31 to 37. Now part of that's because we're having babies left and right. <laughs> that's, and that's all right. That's a good strategy too. And, and likewise, you know, the working age to retired age was, there were 27 of us to 40 of us. And now there's 44 44 working age people to 37. So that one's shifted a lot. Now there's you know, more people of working age than retired age. And so you can see that we're, we're reaching out, that we're doing some things. We're, we're trying to uh, you know, focus on doing ministry to, uh, to kids and to their families that we can reach out to and so forth. But you know, let's, let's set a goal. You know, we're, we're not going to get to, you know, that, <laughs> that ratio overnight, right? Um, and, and frankly, that ratio scares some of us that work in children's ministry, right? You're thinking, now hang on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm signing up for that Sunday school class. Um, but, you know, baby steps. Could we have more members in that younger group than we do in the retired group by this time next year? I think it's possible. It's close already. It's getting closer. So let's strive for that. Let's try to do the things that we did at first. Let's be passionate about our faith. Let's live it out. Let's be willing to share our faith. Let's be willing to invite young families. Let's be willing to serve in children's ministry. Because without a a safe, fully staffed environment... For those kids, they're not going to be able to come. But let's, in some sense, get back to the things that we did at first. Not only individually, but as a church. And so pray for our leadership team. It's just kind of getting off the ground, and and we've got some goals and things we feel like we need to work on this year. But part of that is, you know, looking forward and saying, what do we need to, you know, where are we headed and what do we need to do to get there? And so we'd ask you for your prayers as we seek that and discern that and work with the council and, and the business team. And so pray for the leadership of our church. And, uh, and if you get called up to, to help with something, think about saying yes before you blurt out a no. And, and let's, let's uh, work together and start maybe doing more of the things that we did at first. Sound good? Let's pray together.
Father, we're all here in a different place with our walk with you today. Some of us, we may just be kind of starting out fresh with you and, and there's a lot of passion and Others of us, we're going strong and faithful and, and our passion has grown deeper and we're in a good spot. Some of us, God, we feel like some of that passion that we had at first just didn't really there anymore and we need to get back to doing the things that we did at first. And we confess that to you today. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us, that you would take inventory of our lives and of our hearts. Point out to us the things that you would have us to do that we did at first. And give us the courage to do it. We pray that for us individually. And we pray that for our church as well. Because we do love you, Lord. Because you did love us first. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.